Dave Plyer on 720 WGN. Television producer and broadcasting legend Norman Lear has enjoyed a long career in television and film and is a political and social activist and philanthropist. Norman's work is legendary, the renowned creator of such iconic television shows as All in the Family, Maud, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and so many others. He remade our television culture from the ground up. At their peak, his programs were viewed by 120 million people a week with stories that dealt with the most serious issues of the day, racism, poverty, abortion, menopause, swingers, politics, and so much more, yet leaving audiences howling with laughter. His signature series, All in the Family, held the number one spot from 71 to 76 in the Nielsen ratings, and it was called the fourth greatest TV show of all time by TV Guide. It earned 22 Emmy Awards, including four for Best Comedy Series. And in his new book, Even This I Get to Experience, Norman opens up with all the candor, humor, and wisdom to be expected from one of America's greatest living storytellers. And we are thrilled he's joining us tonight. Mr. Lear, good evening to you. Good evening to you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'll tell you, I I read your book uh, over the last week, and uh, it's 92 years in the making. I thought it would be be volumes uh, based on your career. Well, it could be volumes if I told every minute of it, but I spared you that. Okay, all right, fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. And I knew this was a true labor of love. It took you about six years to put it together. It did. Well, I actually, I'd been noting, I knew 20 years ago I was going to do it. And I had uh, boxes of correspondence and notes and uh, other uh, projects I worked on that filled in and other, you know, adventures in the media. So I uh, I was note-taking in six years, actually, in the writing. Wow. Wow. So it's probably, I would say, 40, 50 years collecting all this information. You must have known at the time when, you know, when you were producing all these great shows that you, you had to start building an archive of some sort. Well, everybody around me built that archive. You know, the shows, uh, we sat around a giant table, the writers talking about stories, every bit of it which was transcribed. All those transcriptions that led into the scripts exist, all the scripts exist, so there's a, yeah. there's a library of material. Sure, sure. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. You grew up uh, in Connecticut, correct? I was born in New Haven, raised uh, largely in Hartford. Okay. And at a very very young age, I know your your dad was uh, was a bit of a schemer. Yes, <laughs> my favorite uh, word the word that I, I he was a thief. Yeah, uh, he lied, he cheated, he stole, and I do, and I adored him. Uh, and I've just learned to live with that dichotomy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have all the reason in the world to feel something other than that. But, uh, uh, you know, today is another day, and uh, every day is a production. So I'm, I'm always into uh, today, to now and next. Sure, absolutely. This absolutely. minute and the next. Yeah. Now, you know, at the time, you mentioned your dad, you know, he landed him in jail. You were, you were living with cousins and, and relatives and so forth. It was all during the Depression. Yeah. And out of this situation, you, you know, you must have found some humor to get through it all. Well, when you're nine years old and your father is uh, hauled off to prison and your mother is selling all the furniture and she's going to take your only sister and live with her, and you're going to go to a relative and then a relative and then wind up with your grandparents. Uh, and in that condition, somebody puts us in, 
hands on your shoulder. Yeah. An adult puts his hand on your shoulder and says, you're the man of the house now. And that's a big responsibility. You, you yeah. have got to understand the foolishness of the human condition. Yeah. How, how foolish could the guy be to say to a nine-year-old, you're the man of the house, in that condition, under those circumstances? Sure. So, so I learned humor very early, uh, where it also triggers uh, sadness. Now, for a brief time um, after that, you went to Emerson College in Boston. You enlisted in the in the Air Force. You were a radio operator, uh, World War yeah. II. Radio operator on a B-17, and uh, mine was also the top gun. In battle, uh, over a target, I had the top gun. 52 combat missions. It's 52 missions. We, were, we went over on a mission basis. And some missions counted for two because they were endlessly mm-hmm. long, flying out of Foggia, Italy. And then we on a sortie basis. So I flew 52 missions, dropped bombs 33 times. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, as we approach Veterans Day, I thank you for your service, of course. Well, thank you. Absolutely. War is over. You moved to L.A., and you decided to start a career in public relations. What kind of took you in that direction right out of school? Well, I, I was a kid of the Depression. My father and his brothers were all uh, belly up is the expression of the time. They, they they all lost jobs. They all were in a terrible place economically. And I had one uncle who used to flick me a quarter when he saw me. <laughs> and he was my role model. I wanted to be an uncle who could flick a quarter. He was a press agent. I wanted to be a press. I didn't even know what the hell it was, but I wanted to be one. <laughs> well, he was the visible example in your life. I'm sorry? He was the visible example. Oh, he was the only example yeah. of the kind of... That's what I wanted to be, an uncle who could flip a quarter. Yeah. And you, and you did that for a little while. You were you were a door-to-door salesman selling various products, and, and yeah. this was all with your cousin's husband that you were doing this. But that partnership translated into writing comedy. How did that develop from door to door? He had come to uh, California to uh, to write comedy. I had come to be, as I said, a press agent. Uh, our wives hit it off. They went to the movies one night, and uh, he was working on a parody to uh, a, a song. And, uh, and it just felt naturally for me to help him, and, and we had a good time. When the girls came home from the movie, uh, I said, let's go out and see if we can sell it. There were a number of nightclubs at that time in mm-hmm. L.A. And uh, within a mile of us was a place called the Bar of Music and a woman sitting at a piano telling jokes and playing. And we sold her the parody for 35 bucks. Wow. And uh, my half of that was half of what I made <laughs> five days a week trying to sell door to door. Yeah. So uh, we started to write together every night. And you wrote a, a nightclub act, I think, for Danny Thomas. Wasn't that kind of like the big kickoff for you where you got recognized? Yeah, yeah it wasn't an act. It was a, a short bit about uh, three Jewish words that had no counterpart in any other language, <laughs> each of them gradations of, uh, of the same thing. You know, you're mixed up, you are terribly mixed up, you are totally crazed. <laughs> That those three kind of words, and uh, he did it the next night at uh, at uh, a very famous place called Ciro's. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, we got a call to come to New York uh, if we knew how to write television, <laughs> which we didn't know, but said we did. And uh, we were doing the next thing you know, we were in New York doing the Jack Haley Ford Star Review. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you did just a handful of shows. All right, so this is how quickly this moved for you. You did a handful of shows, and you were immediately hired away by Jerry Lewis. By Jerry Lewis. Well, here's the interesting thing. We were not writers before. We we started writing the Jack Haley show. Mm-hmm. So we were TV writers. Other guys that came from radio, I may have had 10 years of experience, far more, I mean, all of them more experience than I, anybody who wrote for a day had more experience than we had. But we were television writers because we hadn't done anything else. But people didn't think of it that way. And we were instantly important television writers because... That's where we started. Well, the dawn of television. I mean, we're talking about the early 50s here, and we're talking about Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. It was a Colgate comedy hour, which was a yes. big, big, big show back then. It was an, it was an enormous success. It had rotating comics, and Dean and Jerry were at the, at the pinnacle. Yeah. And then you did the Martha Ray show for a while. You did the Tennessee Ernie Ford show, the George Goble show. And then in 54, in, in again, you, you landed your first role as producer, uh, for Martha Ray, there was a variety show, and 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 right out of the box, amazing guest stars during that time. Art Carney, I was looking at the list here: Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Benny Goodman, Harpo Marx, Jaja Gabor. That's a pretty oh, right. cool start, right off the yeah. top. Tallulah Bankhead, you know, Tallulah Bankhead and Martha, uh, in a way, were uh, led up to our being fired. We oh. were fired from the Martha Ray show. How did that happen? It happened because, uh, I'm going to show you how the times have changed. There was a little girl, a little black girl, who won the $6,400 question uh, on radio. Mm-hmm. And But there was a tremendous amount of publicity. It was at the beginning of the celebrity craziness. And we grabbed her uh, to star in a show in which the guest star was to the Bankhead. The little girl had a good fairy, Bronte Bray, and a bad fairy, Tallulah Bankhead. It was a great stage actress at the time. It was a very good show. And at the bows, uh, at the end of the show, the music playing, the credits rolling, uh, Tallulah Bankhead and Martha Ray picked up the little girl. She was seven or eight and held her and hugged her. And we went off the air. And I don't know, maybe there were 30 letters. Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. And we were warned, be careful, that kind of thing must not happen again. Wow. And a couple of weeks, uh, or a couple of shows later, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was on the show. He was our guest star. Martha Ray was doing a sketch where uh, it was a famous sketch. We were stealing it, actually, called <laughs> Guzzler's Gin. It was a burlesque sketch. Uh-huh. We wrote our version of it. And it had her thinking she was drinking lemonade, a product that she was selling, and it was spiked and didn't know it. So she was getting tipsy. I, directing her, asked her to be tipsy like uh, Maureen O'Hara or Joan Fontaine would be tipsy, like a little... You know, like a Catherine Hepburn might be tipsy. And she was hilarious. But I didn't know that after uh, our dress rehearsal, her husband, who was a, uh, uh, a, a dancer and came from the streets, a great guy, but he was a street guy, said, what the hell are you doing there? You're Monterey. What do you mean tipsy? You're Monterey. Give it to him. So we were live up at 8, off at 9. And uh, and Martha in the sketch now started to <laughs> to uh, gulp it 
and to put it under her arms, to put it down her breast, <laughs> her chest, and uh, and exploded with it into his face. And the makeup was running in his face, and the crowd was hilarious. Was I hilarious. bet. I bet. It sounds hysterical. Uh, but the sponsor viewed it like the other thing, and we were gone. And that was it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, right right after that, I mean, you did uh, probably the greatest thing. You, you teamed up with Bud Yorkin. You formed Tandem Productions. And now you went into film. So after doing TV, you decided to, to take, a, take a chance at film. Yes, we did. With the Divorce American Style, I think was the, the, the first of... Uh, Dick of, Van Dyke. Uh, yeah. With Dick Van Dyke and uh, Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, that was a great one. Nominated for an Academy Award as well. And then came All in the Family, which took three years to get on the air. And we'll talk about that next with TV legend Norman Lear. Next on 720 WGN. Day Plier on 720 WGN. We're talking to television producer and broadcasting legend Norman Lear about his new book, Even This I Get to Experience. So, Norman, uh, it was when All in the Family, you started talking about All in the Family. You brought a British sitcom to U.S. television. But it wasn't an easy road to get that first episode on the air. I think you originally started producing it for ABC. I did. I put the ABC bought it, and we made the pilot with Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton, two other young people. I knew Rob Reiner since he was six or so years old, but I thought him too young for it uh, at, at that time. And so we had two other young people, but the same script uh, as the one that, orig- that went on the air eventually. Uh, and ABC, they had the right to ask me to make it again, which would hold it for another year, uh, or put it on. They elected not to put it on and had me make it again, so they controlled it for two years. Uh, so we made it again also with uh, O'Connor and Stapleton and two other young people. And you know, Same script. Back, same script, though, right? Same script. 100% the same script. Yeah. My theory was you can't get wetter than wet. We're going to jump in the water with Archie, 360 degrees of him, and we're going to get wet together. And uh, so it's the same script uh, three years later when CBS, a, a new president, uh, came into uh, that role. Bob Wood at CBS and Fred Silverman, his uh, associate, and they bought it. But, you know, see, even even then, when they bought it, CBS wanted to pull the plug almost at the last minute, right right, right up to the opening. They wanted to run the second show we made first, yeah. and it wasn't the script that I intended to show 360 degrees of, uh, of uh, Archie Bunker. So uh, we went to within uh, 20 minutes of the broadcast in the East. In those days, uh, well, still, it's three hours later in... Uh, sure. In uh, three hours earlier, but three hours later in New York. Well, and what's amazing, right in the opening segment is what they had a problem with. You know, okay, here we have a married couple. Nothing happened. The camera saw nothing. They just didn't like what was being alluded to. Please explain that. Well, they walked into, uh, uh, they had gone to church. It was a Sunday morning. It was their anniversary. Mm-hmm. The kids were preparing a uh, surprise brunch for them. Archie hated the sermon, didn't like the pastor either, <laughs> left the church. They came in arguing about the sermon. And uh, while the kids were alone in the house, which happened very rarely, Mike 
uh, coaxed Gloria into going upstairs. It was as they were going up and were just lost for a moment uh, to the top of the stairs when the, the bunkers came in. They came running down. Archie guessed what was happening. And the line that was in contention was, Archie saying, 11.10 on a Sunday morning. And I said, well, what, it's an innocuous line. But no, it isn't. It's, uh, it's, it's pointed at something we all know what it's about. Absolutely. Well, of course we know what it's about, but then again, they're married. Right, right. What's the problem? Yeah, I guess that it was Sunday. I don't I don't know <laughs> in this day and age, but yeah. I, I, I don't know. But that was the final that, that, that had to come out. Now, the, that script could have lived very well without that line. So I wasn't fighting for some uh, for the line. It was the meaning behind it. It was so innocuous that it was common sense to understand that if I said, "Okay, let's take that little innocuous line out," that I would lose every battle after that. Absolutely, it would never stop. Yeah. So it wasn't. I didn't look at it like a, a, a the giant war. It seemed to be in hindsight. It was just, I, mean, I can't give into this or the silliness will prevail. Absolutely. Great, great hindsight as well. And I know the first show, too, had a disclosure in the beginning of it even, uh, you know, just to warn viewers what they were about to see, which I don't believe there was any reaction. I mean, maybe a handful, but it was like, great show. Yeah. It, it, it was, uh, uh, what do they call that when they, before they put it on, they take it back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, right. This was a whole paragraph. Right, right. Now, hands down, All in the Family is clearly the most, one, probably one of the most important, if not the most important show of the 20th century. Did you know at the time how important this show was going to be in television history? No, I was a guy with, uh, uh, let's see, I had two kids, and I was uh, fighting to make a living. I didn't, it wasn't like, uh, it was the beginning of a career. And mm-hmm. what, what this was work. We were working. And the other guys were and gals were in the same uh, situation. We were all fighting to, to make a living as writers. The difference, I think, was that I was born into a serious situation. Yeah. I got to understand the foolishness of the human condition out of the tragedy and uh, the problems that exist there. Sure. So I gravitated to writing out of that. And our little team of writers, this was, you have to remember, a giant collaboration. I, mean, uh, I, I wasn't alone here. And I created the show and the characters, but I had a great team of uh, writers, men and women, who were devoted to it. But they were devoted first to their own families, they were men and women who were married or single and and uh, part of the culture. They looked at everything that impacted their kids, their families, and themselves, economically, socially, sexually, whatever, the sure. illness, uh, all of that. And that's what we wrote from, the reality of the lives we were living. And then in front of the camera, you know, I know, I know, Carol. Uh, you know, based on what you wrote, he developed his character after a cab driver. He knew. What was it like working with Carol O'Connor? Well, it was it was as difficult as it could be on the one hand, and it was miraculous and life-giving on the mm-hmm. other. I mean, to see a guy who, he fought a great deal about what he was doing, didn't like this, didn't like that. Uh, I came to believe he had to go through something, which only he understood 
at some real depth. And then he'd come out Archie Bunker. And when he came out Archie Bunker, there were none of us who could write the dialogue as well as Archie could fume it. <laughs> yeah, right. No, right, right. It's spilled out of him. But there was, a, there was a lot of passion, I mean, between both of you, obviously, you running the show, him being the star of the show. I mean, you both, you know, developed opinions, you know, had opinions, developed opinions, and you learned to work with one another. But, you know, there was a lot of, and I say it with all due respect, but there was a lot of passion on both sides. And so, oh, there was. There yeah. was a tremendous amount and a lot of anger and, and so forth. But, uh, I, I mean, I was so grateful for the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, these things happen in, in, in creative enterprises, and he had his own ideas, and sometimes, by the way, uh, he was, it isn't like the man was always wrong. Yeah. Uh, he bettered everything he touched in the long run. What was your best-remembered story working with Carol? I assume uh, it might be the episode uh, when he was stuck in the elevator. That's the one that leaps to mind, because it was... Kinda, it, it was... Uh, in a small, it was the ele- in an elevator. Five people trapped in an elevator that got stuck on a high floor, and uh, one of them uh, due to have a baby in a couple of weeks. And the tension and uh, and so forth of that moment causes her to uh, go into labor. And uh, Archie was having a relationship with one black dude. And uh, and this Hispanic couple and some of the, of some of the funniest well. dialogue, some of the funniest dialogue ever. And yes, it was it was a hilarious uh, situation for him to be in, and I'm sure he understood that. But he, but it was also uh, he was with four players that were not well known. He's the star of the show. It's you know he has to deliver in that confinement enormously. Mm-hmm. And a baby is going to be born on the floor of that elevator. The camera isn't going to be there. It's going to be on Archie's face. And, uh, I mean, as I say it, I, I think about how glorious it was as an idea and how super glorious he made it as an actor. That moment is indelible in yeah, I mean, just like you said in the first episode, you know, there was a lot of things that were alluded to. There was a lot of things that were alluded to in the end of this episode. You never really saw anything, but you saw you saw the action and you saw the emotion of what was happening just in Carol's face. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I can't name, uh, uh, I don't know, over all the years, I don't know how many actors I could name that could possibly pull that off. Yeah. Jean Stapleton, I know you had a wonderful relationship with her. Yes. Jane Stapleton, somebody asked me early in our relationship and uh, the show's history, somebody said, what's Jane Stapleton like? And I heard myself saying, she, she's always where she is. And there was some time later, I, I really dwelled on that. and thought, oh my God, how remarkable is that? Yeah. She's always where she is. And then I started to reflect on me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. I couldn't say that and wish to. Yeah, um, you know what? What were your your, your favorite episode with Gene? Because Gene was the focus of so so many episodes. Probably, I don't know what my favorite was. My what my mind leaped to was uh, uh, we wanted Gene to lose her faith in God and examine what that would mean, and we found a way easily that would would uh, cause that. Uh, 
there was a Beverly LaSalle who mm-hmm. was a uh, yeah. transgender. Yeah. And, uh, and, Be- and <laughs> Edith looked at her as the woman she w- wished to be, appeared to be, you know. And it didn't cross, nothing negative crossed her mind. That's who she was. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is killed <laughs> by a gang uh, for the for the the reason for her sexuality and uh, Edith can't understand a god who would allow that and loses her faith and then we had weeks uh, we we couldn't run or make and run the first show without having the second show Edith gaining it uh, regaining her, her faith right. and it took weeks uh, thinking about that so we couldn't make the first we had the script uh until somebody uh, asked the question, well, what happens to Archie when Edith loses her faith? And we all realized in an instant, uh, she goes to, uh, he goes to pieces. Yeah. He needs her strength, her, and her strength yeah. Yeah. Uh, came, her strength starting with the fact that she adored him, and, and there's nothing he could say that could stop that. Talk about strength. Well, there was such depth to everything that you wrote, and of course there was also the remarkable, you know, Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers. Well, All in the Family was followed by a succession of other TV hit shows, including Maud, Sanford and Son, Good Times, Jefferson's, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and countless others, and we'll talk to our guest TV legend Norman Lear about that next on 720 WGN. Stay player on 720 WGN, and we're talking to television producer and broadcasting legend Norman Lear about his new book, Even This, I Get to Experience. So many spinoffs, uh, you know, at a time, there wasn't a lot of spinoffs in the 60s or, or the 50s. This show, uh, All in the Family, generated so many, so many spinoffs. Uh, the first one was Maud, correct? Yes. Uh, you know, the word spinoffs always interested me. I always thought about, you bring on a player that you think can work in his or her own show, and she's kind of a Bush League player. Mm-hmm. And and you're, what you're trying to do is groom her or, or him for the for the majors. That's the that was the terminology I always uh, okay. thinking about it. Well, we wanted on all in the family. We wanted somebody to come along that would reach through the depth of a lot of years to beat the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, they, I, I learned in my family, there's nothing like an old relative with a grudge. Yeah. You didn't invite Gert to the wedding. How could you have done that 27 years ago? <laughs> that person coming in with that. So Maud was uh, a cousin uh, as, a, as a girl and best friend of Edith's. Yeah, they, the whole family was sick. The whole family was sick, and Maudie was called to come take care. I remember the episode. It was absolutely vintage because it was the first time I think I saw Archie really beat up by somebody. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, they needed to be Arthur playing that yeah, role. Yeah. But with that grudge that came back, from, that came over the years. Now, now from Maud came good times. Did, did you get flack at the time because of the portrayal of, of this black family, you know, in Chicago, that it was, that it was more negative? We, we got flack uh, a couple of years in. There was some flack. Uh, some of it was helpful because it was about why uh, why is the only black character uh, supporting a family working three jobs? Why is it that's hmm. not the truth in America? People move up, move on. 
and uh, several uh, uh, African-American uh, newspapers carried stories like that or hints of that uh, uh, feeling. And that motivated us. We were thinking about them, the, the actors, uh, for, to do the Jeffersons, but it certainly motivated moving on up. Absolutely. Right, 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 right. Which I would say you remedied, remedied that with another sitcom. So the Jeffersons, and I forgot, you know, obviously the Jeffersons came after Good Times, and it, and it, and it surprises me always because really they were, you know, so pre- prevalent in the first season um, of, of the show. When you develop those characters, you know, Isabel Sanford, and I, I know Sherman Hemsley came a little bit later, did you ever think in, your, in the back of your mind, here is another show, or did it come to you kind of later after you did Good Times? No, I, I Bushley characters were everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you couldn't hire a good actor without wondering if that good actor shouldn't move up, and uh, that motivated as much of the thinking as anything else. Wouldn't it be fun to see this glorious performer in his or her own show? Sure, sure, sure. And then there was one day at a time, and I had, I had read that. Um, there, you know, when Maud, um, you know, when when the abortion issue came up on Maud, this was a episode originally written for Bonnie Franklin on one day at a time. What decided to go a different route and a whole different show with this with this subject matter? Well, we, it was written originally, uh, uh, and not that it was the same script as it, you know, that was finally done. Yeah, because Joan Harris, who later created Golden Girls, wrote is responsible for uh, the abortion episodes on All in the Family. Mm-hmm. The one I can't remember who but it was the team that wrote it for Bonnie Franklin. But we were—I don't remember exactly why we hadn't made it, but we certainly intended to make it. When somebody came in with a newspaper article about a woman in her seventies that was raped. And as we talked about that, we thought, you know, rape is usually considered what they what they look for first is what did the, what was the girl doing to entice the guy? Yeah, horrible. Was her shirt too uh, her skirt too short? Or, mm-hmm. So this kind of thinking uh, and and speculation about uh, and certainty that older women, as as a result of seeing this story. Mm-hmm. Our rape too caused us to say, "Let's do it with Jean and not with a young woman." Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I will tell you, you know, one day at a time. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Fernwood tonight, Sanford and Son, so many others. Silver spoons, facts of life, different stories that just came from you. Square no, pegs. Well, you know, a giant collaboration. Absolutely, but still, out of out of all the other shows outside of All in the Family, what show would you say you're most proud of outside of All in the Family? Well. I would say Maud Good Times at Jefferson and Mary Hartman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right. Fair enough. Fair Mary enough. Hartman was had one spectacular thing about it, and that was that it it, it set up something at the beginning, and, uh, you know, it was on five nights a week. Yeah. So, so there were sure. several hundred episodes, and it concluded on the same thing in which it began. And it wished to explore the impact of the media on a simple housewife. And the media drove her crazy at yeah. the end. Yeah. And her, yeah, on the David Susskind show, uh, as a result of the inquiry of three hard-hitting media bullshitters, I can't say that, can I? Uh, Whatever you'd like. They, <laughs> Uh, they drove her crazy, and that's yeah. one of the best acting jobs I've ever seen. Very cool. 
Very cool. Now, I've also, I also know you've stayed very active over the decades to speak out for the Bill of Rights. Obviously, producing these shows, I would think you would, you would have to be, and specifically the First Amendment, um, you know, the People for the American Way. In the late 80s, you began the Environmental Media Association to make sure that the entertainment industry was, you know, environmentally responsible, which is very early on when you think about the early, or excuse me, the late right. 80s. Declare yourself to get people out to vote and countless others. And here's a little-known fact that I think people might not know. In 2001... You and your wife purchased one of the first published copies of the United States Declaration of Independence. How, how cool was that? It couldn't have been cooler. This was one of 26 known to exist in the world. Uh, it was the only one in private hands. And uh, uh, it was, this group were printed the night of July 4th, 1776. Wow. Unlike the one that was signed, that was signed over months uh, and uh, and there's only one copy, but this was printed to be sent by horseback around the thirteen colonies, and there are twenty some left. And so I looked at it as our country's birth certificate, Absolutely. the night of, and we had the best time in the history of good times, uh, sending it around the country with yeah. the cooperation of major sponsors and the U.S. Postal Service and. It was fabulous. Well, that's what I love about it is not only did you purchase it, though, but you, you, you took it on the road. You let people see it. You, you shared it with the country. That's pretty well, cool. Well, that was its purpose. No. I mean, I didn't buy it to hang it on a wall. I hear you. I hear you. Well, I'll tell you what. Nominated for an Academy Award, inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1984, four Emmy Awards, the Humanist Award, uh, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the National Medal of Arts, and so much more, absolutely incredible. And and you are you are a legend in your own time. And I'm I'm thrilled you spent some time with us tonight. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Thank you. Well, the new book is even this I get to experience. Available wherever books are sold. And for more on Norman Lear, you can visit normanlear.com. Thank you. Thank you. Much more ahead on 720 WGN.